All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians, uh, the book of Philippians chapter 3, the book of Philippians chapter 3. Father, in the name of Jesus, how grateful we are to be in your presence. You are the way maker and a miracle worker. You keep your promises, uh, and we thank you that no matter how dark it is, you are still our light. And now we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us this morning. We ask, oh, Father, that, that your life and your power would be present. We ask in Jesus' name that, that you would speak deep within our hearts, uh, that, Lord, you would show us your grace, you would show us your mercy, and may you be glorified as a result of what happens uh, in this place. And we thank you in Jesus' name that, that you will touch and heal and show yourself to us through your word. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read 14 verses, so uh, stay with me here. I know I've been reading a lot on Sunday mornings, but uh, at least you can go home and say I read almost half the chapter of Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I, might have, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The message I want to share with you this morning, I've entitled, The Joy of Losing. Uh, Red Sanders, who used to be a football coach for UCLA, um, said one time, winning is not everything. It's the only thing. Um, and how many of you have ever felt that way, right? Winning's not just everything, anything, or it, the thing. It's, it's it. It's, it's the only thing, right? We all like to win. Nobody really goes into anything with the intention of losing. Anybody ever done that? Man, I can't wait to play. I can't wait to lose. Come on now. Bring it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, I, I guess unless you're a Browns fan. <laughs> Sorry, Ron. <laughs> I almost just used a Browns helmet as my background, but I decided not to do it. (laughs) Ah, shoot. The joy of losing. Nobody nobody intends of going uh, to watch a losing game. Uh, But it's, 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 when we recognize this, we like, you know, we like the reward. We like the honor. We all like the feeling of winning. 
But we also don't like the consequences, we don't like the fear, and we don't like the feeling of losing. We don't like the shame of losing. Um, and there are some, some folks that won't even get involved unless they know they're going to win. Um, and, and so it's almost as though, well, if you can rig the game and, and make sure that I'm going to win, then I'll, I'll do it, right? Sometimes my, my, uh, Avery got a little frustrated bowling uh, the other evening. Uh, he didn't do too well on the first two, so he went over and just sat on the step. Not the chair, not the bench, the step. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm not bowling anymore. <laughs> and he didn't. <laughs> I gave him a speech about quitting. He didn't care. Um, <laughs> It's like, that's fine. I don't care. I quit. I can't lose if I quit, right? (laughs) Oh, but anyway. But today, in the day and age that we live in, we want everyone to win. We want everybody to win. Uh, We want everybody to get a trophy. We want everybody to get a pat on the back. Um, We avoid uh, keeping score in, in games, you know, even though, you know, as a parent, you're keeping the score in your head, aren't you? You're saying, I think we're winning five to four, right? And, and Logan was always that way. And T-ball, you know, five years old, he'd come over and tell me what the score is. I'm like, Logan, we're just all running around bases. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but we don't keep score because we don't want anybody to be offended. You mean somebody lost? I think I told you when, when I was in elementary school, I had a student. Uh, he came over and asked me, Mr. Thomas, did we win or lose? I said, I said you lost. And so he said, am I a loser? No, you're not a loser. You just lost this game. So I'm a loser. So right now, yes, you are a loser. Get over it, kid. Don even mentioned this morning. I mean, that was a nice story. I mean, I'm glad that the Lord says I'm not there yet. But you also got an F. You got an F. Right? I think it was John Chris that pointed out, you know, in school, they, they just completely skipped over E to make sure you knew that you failed. <laughs> A, B, C, D. Forget E. F! F! You failed. Um, we avoid the possibility many times of our kids getting hurt. We, we, we avoid any possibility that our kid might get left out. Uh, we have, you know, the, the phrase nowadays is called helicopter parenting, where uh, the parent is just constantly hovering over their child, and everywhere they go, they make sure, you know, they don't bump your knee, don't stub your toe, don't run into a fence, don't, you know, whatever, uh, don't run out in the road. We've, we, we've got this idea that, it, that kids aren't ever supposed to go through anything, and what happens is, is we've created an atmosphere where there's no pain, there are no setbacks, there are no challenges, and there are no consequences, you go to school, you're the best student ever. No, you're not. You need to work harder, right? I mean, that's something, I mean, you know what I'm saying? You need, you need to apply yourself. You're the greatest baseball player ever. No, you probably shouldn't be playing. You're not that good. It builds over even into the church. You know, we can hear, I love God, I want to sing. But you can't. You can't sing. So don't. And you know what? It's okay to be told that. Maybe that's not your gifting. 
But what happens is what we've done. We've created that atmosphere where we never get hurt. We never have any setbacks. We never have any consequences. And what we've done is we have produced spoiled, emotionally weak people who don't understand losing and they don't understand failure. And therefore, they don't understand life. They don't understand how to operate because everything has been a bubble that they've lived in their whole life. I've been told my whole life by my mom that I am wonderful. Right? And then I went off to college and they gave me an F. Does my professor not know how wonderful my mom thinks I am? I can tell you this much. No, they don't care how wonderful your mom thinks you are. I had a professor tell a guy in my principles of accounting class that he had the IQ of that umbrella over in the corner. I'm not even sure what that means. An umbrella doesn't have an IQ. Although I've been attacked by an umbrella before. You ever been attacked by an umbrella? (laughs) It's always in a storm, you know? (laughs) There's actually a psychological tendency called loss aversion, and it's seen most prominently in economics. And basically what the statement of loss aversion is, our fear of loss is greater than our desire to gain. In other words, In economic terms, they use this phrase, it's actually better not to lose $5 than it is to find $5. So in our minds, in our psychological makeup, it's safer for us to not lose $5 than it is to actually risk something and possibly find $5. So people don't take risks because they're afraid of losing what they already have. And because they're afraid of losing what they already have, they don't ever take any risks. Psychologically, it has been shown that basically the pain of losing is about twice as painful as the pleasure, as the pleasure of gaining something. In other words, when, when we lose or when we fail or when we don't make it or we don't succeed, the pain or the shame that we feel from losing is twice as greater than what we feel when we gain something, when we win, when we have the pleasure of winning. Loss aversion really is just an expression of fear. We're afraid to let go of something. And because we're afraid of, uh, to let go of something, we don't take risks. So we are inclined to avoid negative feelings and hold on to positive ones. And that obviously makes sense. We, we are, don't normally go headlong into uh, negative situations or negative feelings. We want to go someplace where everything's positive, right? We, so... We create these atmospheres where we make sure everything's positive. Everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets this. You know, nobody gets a bad grade. Nobody gets kicked off the team. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, if you weren't good enough, you didn't make the team. You didn't make the team, right? And now, I mean, you've got kids that just get on the team. They get dressed. They don't even know where they are. You know? You're running out on the field. We're halfway through the season. They're still going, where's right field? You know, you, you've got to understand, you know, we, we create this atmosphere where we are going to avoid everything negative and we're going to go f- towards everything positive. So, we, it, so what is our tendency? Our tendency really is to notice our failures more than our successes. Am I right? We notice our failures more than we do our successes. We notice criticism more than we do praise. That's kind of our makeup. You know, 25 people can say, man, that was great. You did a wonderful job. You look nice today or whatever. But one person criticizes you and your whole world falls apart. Are we not seeing that on social media? 
Are we not seeing that in the world that we live in now? If anybody disagrees with you, then the whole world falls apart. What do you mean you don't agree with me, right? The whole world falls apart. And so what happens is we, what we do is we start to protect that which brings us pleasure and we avoid the possibility of losing. So we take whatever it is that has seemingly brought us the most joy or the most satisfaction and we protect that, we cover that, we keep that, we hold that close and we avoid the possibility of losing. This shows up in a lot of different ways. This can show up in hoarding stuff. Don't point at anyone. Does anybody know any hoarders? You don't know any hoarders? Maybe you're a hoarder, right? You can't seem to get rid of anything. You know, you look at it, you don't even remember what it is, but surely I'm going to need this sometime down the road, right? Am, am I right? Now, I mean, there's some of you that just throw stuff away after it gets to your house and it hasn't been used in two days. What? We haven't used this salt shaker in two days? Throw it away! <laughs> That's Kelly. You know, we, we, we were cleaning out Logan and Avery's room, and you go through these toys, and you're like, I can't throw this away. It has so many memories. But he hasn't played with it since he was like 18 months. Like, it's broken. It's not even the same color anywhere, anymore. You know, like, I think it needs to go in the trash, right? But you, you hold on to these things because you, wanna, you want to remember this. It shows up in, staying in, in people who stay in bad relationships. They stay in relationships that they know they shouldn't be in because they're afraid that, Losing what they have is worse than gaining something better, right? I, I would rather hang on to something that's kind of bad out of fear that what I might get next is even worse, right? You know, and I'm, I'm sorry, ladies. Some of you probably, if you're single, you're sitting out there saying, Mark, you don't know. The guys out there are pretty bad. <laughs> I, 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 don't get me wrong. I, I understand that, right? Okay, but we're, what we are as Christians are... God trusters, right? We trust God with our lives. We trust that God's going to put us where we're being, right? So it comes out in a lot of ways, staying in bad relationships, being over nostalgic and hanging on to things that you know you don't want to hang on to. And the thing is, the more you gain, the greater loss aversion strengthens its grip. The more stuff you get, the more stuff you're afraid to lose. The more money you make, the more money you're afraid you're going to lose, And so people, even though they may be rich and famous and wealthy, they consistently live in the fear of loss because they're afraid that everything could be pulled out from underneath them and then they have nothing left. But you know what? There is actually power in losing. There's power in losing. And I believe that this is an issue that lots of times we forget to to teach our children at a young age, that it's actually okay to lose, that it's all right every once in a while to fail. It's okay to mess up. There's nobody perfect. Your child is not perfect. All right? I know that there are parents out there that it's always the teacher's fault. Okay? I, I taught for a short period of time over here at Living Faith Christian Academy, and there was always that parent that no matter what their child did, if the child came to school with a flamethrower and burnt the building down, it would somehow be my fault. Right? <laughs> because there are parents who think that their kids do no wrong. Don't get me wrong. You want to protect your child. You want to be on your child's side. I understand that. But little Johnny has to understand sometimes he can't burn things down and there not be any consequences for it, right? There is actually power in losing. Why? First of all, losing teaches us something, right? 
Losing teaches us things. It teaches us what we did wrong and what we can do to improve. But losing also involves letting go, which is one of the most important things to do if you're ever going to move forward. Losing requires you to move on. What would be really funny is after the NBA championship, you know, the Golden State Warriors were celebrating and holding up the trophy, and all of a sudden LeBron James swung in on a rope and tried to snatch the trophy out of, of Steph's hand and run off with it. You're like, you got to let it go, LeBron. You got to let it go. I know you've been there eight times in a row, but you got to let it go, bro. You have to understand that losing involves letting go. But here's another thing about losing. Not only does it teach us something, not only does it show us what we need to let go of, but losing actually reveals character. It reveals character. When you lose, when you face failure, when you come to a place where you feel like you're not overcoming, you're not winning, it's going to reveal your true character. It's going to show what you're made of because anybody can win. Now, there are some people, you have sore losers. There are some people who are sore winners, right? There are some people that just can't win without rubbing it in your face. They just can't win without acting like they're all that. You know, like I won the game all by myself. Right? But when you lose, it reveals your character. But here's the thing. In the end, it's not really about winning or losing that matters. It's about who we are becoming. In life, it is not so much about whether or not you won or whether or not you lost, but what and how you respond to the win or how you respond to the losing. The letter to the Philippians is a prison letter. And so uh, Paul, who's, I think, one of the greatest, greatest characters, not only in the Bible, but one of the greatest people that's ever lived, Paul writes this letter from prison, and the theme of the book is the subject of rejoicing, which you know, would seem odd in our way of thinking. If, if I'm writing a letter from prison, my letter is probably not rejoice. My letter is, can I whine and complain, and will you join me in it, Right? This is the, the pity party letter to the Philippians from Paul the Apostle. That's, but that's not what he wrote. He wrote a letter about rejoicing. He actually prays for their joy. He rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed. He tells them to receive Epaphroditus with rejoicing. He tells them rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, I tell you again, rejoice in the Lord. All through the book of Philippians, he points to this attitude of rejoicing. Chapter 3, verse 1 started with, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. It's not even a suggestion. It's not even something like, well, if you want to, rejoice. You know, if you're not whining, then rejoice. Okay, I know. If it's not a bad day, rejoice. Okay, if your hair looks good, rejoice. If you got any hair, rejoice over that. <laughs> he didn't say any of that. All he said was rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And so we look at that, and this is really one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. That joy is not based on circumstances, it's not based on location, and it's not based on stuff. Joy is not based on circumstances, location, or stuff. Joy is Jesus. Joy is Jesus. Joy is knowing Jesus. And this is one of the paradoxes of, of following after Christ. That as long as we recognize... That my greatest joy, my greatest fulfillment is going to be found in following after Christ. Let me see if I can get this on. I'm going to try to use this handheld. Uh, It's the miscellaneous. Um, As long as I recognize that my joy is not based on what I'm going through. Thank you. 
or where I find myself or wherever my, whatever my circumstance is, that no matter what I'm facing in life, I can know deep, lasting, unshakable joy. It's a weird thing for us to think about that Paul would be writing from a prison and saying, you can know joy. You can know joy that is deep. You can know joy that is real. You can know joy that is lasting. You can know joy that is not based upon how you feel, that's not based upon what you're going through, that's not based upon what somebody else is doing or what somebody else is not doing, but you can know joy wherever you find yourself and wherever you are going. Paul is this example. It's almost as though hard times fueled his joy. It's almost like Paul, no matter what he went through and no matter what he faced and no matter what he was going through, he found a way to rejoice. He found a way to worship. He found a way to praise. Paul had seemed to find a way to find joy in losing. Now, Paul has a very powerful religious resume. He goes through it here. And he says, you know, there are a lot of people that will try to find their confidence in the flesh. In other words, they would try to find their confidence in what they can do and their abilities to save themselves or be religious. And Paul said, if there's anybody that has that kind of resume, it's, it's me, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law. I was zealous. I was a Pharisee concerning following after Christ. I was persecuting, I mean, following after the law, I was persecuting the church. He said, I have a very good resume of religion in the eyes of man. But Paul said, you know, my prominent place is in a realm of influence. It's a realm of religious life. But Paul says, I count all these things as loss that I might know Christ. In other words, Paul counted everything that was a supposed gain in his life that he had gotten from the world as a liability. All of this that I have gained in the world, I consider it a liability. He literally throws them into the dung heap. He throws them into the dung heap. They are rubbish. They are trash. They are worthless. They are of no value. Why? Because of the excellency, the priceless value, the ultimate joy of knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. When it comes to the world and his pursuit of Jesus, Paul is not struggling with loss aversion. He is not more concerned about what he may lose than what he knows he will gain. Paul is not concerned that he is going to let go of those things that have now become worthless to him. Liabilities, obstacles in his pursuit of Jesus and that which Christ has called Paul to do. Paul has no fear in leaving behind the past to move forward into a deep relationship with his Savior. Paul, not only in following after Jesus, not only in in accepting the call that Jesus laid upon his life, Paul lost prominence, he lost stature, he lost power, he lost position. Paul was probably a wealthy man, sent out by the Sanhedrin to persecute the church. He was higher up probably and recognized even by the Roman authorities because Paul was able to drag these Christians into Roman courts of law. So Paul had a name. 
Of course, his name was Saul at that time. But Paul had a name. They knew Paul. He had prominence. He had stature. He probably had money. And not only did he lose friends, he probably made some very powerful enemies who wanted to imprison him and eventually chopped his head off because of his stand for Christ. You know what Paul says about all of this stuff? So what? So what? Paul says, is anything worth more than Christ? Is anything more valuable than Jesus? Paul not only wanted to experience the power of the resurrection, but he was more than willing to fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus that would lead to greater knowledge and greater intimacy. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, listen, folks, I'm willing to be beaten. I'm willing to be put in prison. I'm willing to be mocked. I'm willing to be rejected. I'm, I'm willing to lose stature and prominence and power and authority and position and money and friends. Because why? Of the excellency of knowing Jesus, of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Amen. Why? That I might be made conformable unto his death. Paul's saying all this with a smile on his face. Hey, I lost friends. Hey, man, I lost my job. Come on now. People that used to like me hate me. Hallelujah. Paul could have been crazy. I don't know. But he had a passion for Jesus. Why? Because Paul knew that losing would lead to gain. He knew that losing would lead to gain, and this was the source of his joy. Paul says, I will gladly exchange everything that I've gained in this world for what it means to know Jesus and the pursuit of his purpose. I will gladly exchange everything in this world that that I might know Christ and that I might know his purpose for my life. Now, see, this is advice that's given to a persecuted church. Paul's talking to the Philippians. They're under persecution. Not only are they being persecuted by the Roman Empire, but they're being infiltrated by what is called Judaizers. They were being infiltrated by Christians who were trying to tell the Philippians that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, that they needed to basically continue to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved and in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to them to prepare them by recognizing that there is joy when you lose things for Jesus. We need to, folks, we need to get out of our minds that following Jesus means that life will be easy. Amen. For a matter of fact, the Bible seems to emphatically tell us that the exact opposite is true. Amen. That following after Jesus is not always going to be easy. The, the problem is, is that we are Western Christians. We live in the United States of America. We live in the freest country on planet Earth. No matter what you think about the politicians that are in charge, we are still the greatest country on planet Earth. We still have the greatest freedoms. We we can go to church. We can do what we want to do. We can express our opinions. We might be labeled something now if we do, but we can still speak. We can still say what we want to say. We can still go through a drive-thru and get food in 30 seconds. We live in a great country. Right? So we don't always fully understand persecution. We've not been driven underground. We're not, we're not meeting in houses because we're afraid of who's going to find us. We're not being thrown in prison simply because we tried to share the gospel to somebody on the street. That's not happening to us. And so, therefore, we have this westernized mentality of Christianity that we believe Christianity is about padded pews and air conditioning. Really? I mean, am I right? 
The most that we've been persecuted on a Sunday morning is if the air wasn't on, right? I am so persecuted right now. I cannot believe Jesus has called me to be here. This cannot be God's will for my life. (laughs) Or just the opposite. Man, it's cold in here. Jesus would not want me cold. The Bible says all that, follow, all that live righteous will suffer persecution. So that's, we're just preparing you, right? We're just preparing you. But really, he's saying, prepare, be prepared for this. Because persecution and hard times are always awaiting those who pursue a truth that goes contrary to the stream of current culture. If you're going to stand for the truth and you're going to stand for what goes against the culture, does it come shocking to you that all of a sudden now you're going to face resistance? Is it shocking to you that if you follow after Christ and follow after truth, that if that truth is uncomfortable for people, they're not going to persecute or mock or put you down or try to stop what you're saying? Here's the thing, folks. Following Jesus costs us something. And many times that cost looks and feels a lot like losing. It feels and looks a lot like losing. There's some of you like, well, when I came to Jesus... I thought everything was going to pop up posies. You know, I thought when I gave my life to Christ, I was going to come home and my house was repainted and I had new furniture and new children. That when I gave my life to Christ, my bank account would just explode. That friends would come skipping to my house and bring me stuff. Did that happen for anybody? Because if that did... I need to know you're Jesus, because I'm a... That doesn't happen, right? What we find most of the time when you give your life to Christ, the war just begins. It's just beginning. And if, if, as a Christian, if you've been saved for 40 years and you make a decision in your mind, I'm going to pursue Christ, I'm going to pursue Jesus more than I've ever pursued him in, his life, in my life. I'm going to read my Bible and pray and worship and fellowship and serve. I'm going to give. I'm going to go after Jesus with everything I've got. Do you think the devil just sits back and says, oh, good for you. Have at it. We'll give you a trophy at the end. Hmm. But here's the thing, you might not always look like you're winning, and you might not always feel like you're winning, but when you pursue Jesus and his purpose, you are winning. (laughs) You may not look like you're winning, and you may not feel like you're winning, but if you're pursuing Jesus and his purpose, you are winning. The only way you can lose in this thing is to quit. You have to recognize that as long as you're pushing forward, as long as you're pursuing God, you are winning, because the loss never outweighs the gain. The loss never outweighs the gain. Following after Christ, yes, might mean that you lose some friends, that you can't go places that you used to go. You can't necessarily do some of the things that you used to do. How many of you held off giving your life to Christ because you believed the lie of the devil that said you're going to have to give up all these wonderful things if you're going to follow Jesus? How many of you heard that before you got saved? You heard that in your life? You heard, if I come to Christ, well, then I can't do this anymore, and I can't go here anymore, and then this is going to happen, and I've got to give this up. And we all recognize now that we gave our lives to Christ, that stuff was rubbish. It was worthless. It belongs in a dung heap of the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. See, we don't always experience this level of joy because we do not have this deep, heartfelt attachment to Jesus and his purpose. 
I'm going to say that again because it's a phrase that I hope makes you mad. We don't always experience this level of joy because we, and I'm saying we because I'm in this phrase, we do not have this deep heartfelt attachment to Jesus and his purpose. We say we do. We come to Jesus and say, I love the Lord. Oh, how I love the Lord. <laughs> I never say the Lord. I don't know. What, but we, we, some of you might, I don't know. Oh, how I love Jesus. But when it comes down to it, many times we stay attached to the security and the supposed safety of that which the world offers. It's risky to follow Jesus. It's risky to put your hands in the Savior's hands. Put your life in the Savior's hands. Because we say we love Jesus, we trust God, but yet we all have a security blanket, a security relationship, a security job, a security purpose, security friendship. We all have that security blanket. And in a lot of cases, we start relying on our resume, like Paul was saying a lot of people do. They find their confidence in the flesh. We rely on our stature, our position. We rely on relationships. As long as I have my friends, as long as I have my boyfriend or girlfriend, as long as I have my spouse, as long as I have my children, as long as I have this group of friends, then everything's perfectly fine. And what else do we do? We hang on to our stuff. We add to our stuff. We protect our stuff. It's my stuff. I got my stuff. Don't touch my stuff. And stuff, the problem with stuff is is it has expiration dates. And it depreciates in value. But the joy that we have never runs out. And see, it bleeds over into our spiritual lives. We tend in our spiritual lives to lean on the ritual. Paul fights against this attitude, encouraging the Philippians to pursue Jesus. He refers to those Judaizers who were teaching that religious ritual was the way of knowing God and finding favor with him. He refers to them as dogs, as evil workers, as the concision, which literally means mutilators of the flesh. We as Christians in the New Testament, we recoil. We recoil against the religious ritual of saying that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. We would all say, what? That's not Bible. That's not New Testament. That's not Jesus. If I were to say to you, in order to be saved, you've got to follow the holy days, you've got to follow the Levitical diet, you've got to follow the Levitical regulations. Some of you right now are already out of the will of God because you're wearing shirts that are made of cotton and polyester. You're not allowed to wear mixed, mixed garments. So if you got on a half polyester, half cotton shirt, you're going to hell. Just wanted you to know. Now, I say that to you, we all laugh. Ha, 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 that mark. But we don't, we don't say, yeah, nah, that's what you got to do. You got to get circumcised. You got to follow all these rules and regulations. But if I say you must be baptized, you must live a moral life, you must admire the teachings of Jesus, and you must go to church to be saved, there are a lot, a lot of people who are going, you know, that sounds right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got to be moral. Yeah, sure, that sounds right. Right? You got to admire the teachings of Jesus. Oh, how great. That's a great teaching. Yeah, I'll admire that, right? I go to church. I'm saved. Is that what the Bible says? No. It's not what it says at all. You can live a moral and ethical and high standard life and still not be saved. Because the fact of the matter is, ritual and rules are just rituals and rules if the heart hasn't been changed. All you're doing is keeping rules. All you're doing is going through a ritual. You can be baptized 250 times and look like a prune and still not make it to heaven. It's not about ritual. You don't need baptized. You need saved. 
And this is what's so radical about Christianity. Jesus did not come to give us rules for how to live like a Christian. He literally transforms us into Christians by grace through faith. That's what's so radical about Christianity. We're not talking about just what you do. We're talking about who you are. Jesus doesn't just come and say, do these things. Say our father five times a day and you'll be right with God. No, he says, place your trust in the grace of God and I will change you into a completely different person. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are in a relationship with the creator of the world who's now become our father. And the pursuit of Jesus leads us to know what it means to rely and be dominated by the spirit. And as long as we continue to fall back into ritual and rules lifestyle, then that means we are frustrating grace and we are living in the flesh. As long as we think that we can get God's favor or that we can save ourselves by our rituals and by our rules, then we are frustrating the grace of God and we are living in the flesh. And you know what it will do? It will always drain you of your joy because it leads to sin consciousness where you're constantly thinking about what have I done wrong or what has somebody else done wrong. It leads you to guilt motivation. In other words, you do things for God out of guilt, not out of love for who he is and what he's done in your life. And it always leads to condemnation. And I can tell you this much, condemnation will drive you farther away from God than the original sin ever would have. To enjoy grace, we must be willing to let go of our fleshly attempts at proving our Christian worth. If we are going to enjoy the grace of God, you do not have to prove your worth to God. Jesus already proved your worth when he died on the cross. See, it can be a scary thing to lose in order to gain. Jesus told us that if we lose our life for his sake, we will find it. Now, what does that mean? We don't really know who we are. And we don't really know what our purpose in life is. Unless we first recognize that who we are must be rooted in Jesus. And our primary purpose is to know God and to bring him glory. If I lose my life for Christ's sake, I find it. Which means my identity is not rooted in me. It's rooted in him. Once I surrender my identity to Jesus and submit my pursuits to his purpose, then I find what I was looking for all along. What I thought would bring me the most joy, what I thought would bring me the most satisfaction, what I thought would bring me the most fulfillment is now rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. But this may mean that we lose the securities of this life in order to gain Christ. But we will find that they're all rubbish compared to the treasure of knowing Jesus Let me close by pointing out these three things. What's it mean for us? Number one, to lose is to choose Jesus. If I'm called or required to choose between Jesus and the world, I choose Jesus. If I'm required, if it comes to the point that I have to choose between Jesus and another relationship, I choose Jesus. Jesus and money, I choose Jesus. Jesus and stature, I choose Jesus. Jesus and popularity, we choose Jesus. To lose is to choose Jesus. doesn't make sense all the time, but the Bible tells me losers get a crown. The last will be first. The last will be first. 
We're in an upside-down kingdom. You give things away to get stuff back. You humble yourself to get exalted. You die so you can live. We lose so we can gain. So what's it mean for us? To lose is to choose Jesus. Secondly, to lose is to reveal my treasure. I will use the things of the world to show the world that my treasure is not the world. I'm going to use the things of the world to show the world that my treasure is not the world. My treasure is Jesus. The blessings and the accomplishments of life should be used to reveal God's glory in my life. Not to brag about what we have or to compare ourselves to the Joneses or whoever lives next door to you. So to lose is to reveal my treasure. What I am willing to let go of also shows what I am willing to gain. What I'm willing to let go of shows my priorities of what I'm willing to go after. And this goes for anything you want in life. You've got to be willing to, to, to feel pain. If you're going to run a race, you've got to be willing to, to feel pain. If you're going to compete in, in, in a strength competition, you've got to be willing to feel pain. If you want to lose weight, you got to feel the pain of not eating hot dog every day from Chummy Chomps. To lose is to reveal my... I'm not talking to you or anything, Rick, but I'm just saying. The blessings and accomplishments of life. <laughs> we had Chums this week, didn't we? Amen. Is to reveal God's glory in my life. And lastly, to lose things is to not lose my joy. We don't have to equate the losing of stuff to the losing of my joy because my joy is not based on my stuff. Following Jesus may cause me to lose some things that may even be precious to me in this life, but it does not mean I have to lose my joy. There is no one's opinion that's worth my joy. If you've got people in your life and they're wanting to drag you down, they're not worth taking your joy. They're not worth it. And the world can be unfair, but that doesn't mean it has to crush my heart. Things don't always happen the way I want it to happen. It doesn't always turn out the way I want it to turn out. The the world is not always fair. We get wounded, we get hurt, things happen in our life that we wish would have happened differently, but it doesn't have to crush my heart. It doesn't have to steal my joy. There is a greater joy, a lasting joy in knowing Jesus. I'm not saying that you can't have joy in this world. Surely you can I'm not saying that there aren't things that, that bring us joy, such as, you know, family and friends and food. Those are joyful events. But by definition, the world really can only produce joy that is temporary, circumstantial, and situational. That I'm joyful because today is a reason to be joyful. Like, Carrie's joyful today because she's cancer-free, but she doesn't just have to be joyful today. Right? And so lots of times what the world does is we, we base our joy on circumstances, on situational things. So therefore that joy is temporary, and it's connected to something that doesn't last forever. Even if we connect our joy to a, a relationship, relationships don't last forever. If we connect our joy to our bank account, I mean, even know your bank account doesn't last forever. Come on now. I know all of us in here have gone paycheck to paycheck and scraped up change out of the floor of your car. You ever done that? 
I just want a, I just want a Snicker bar. Surely there's a quarter under here somewhere. <laughs> Surely there's one here someplace. Money don't last forever. When you, when the, you, you ever had those days when the money hits the bank account? Woo! Look at me! You look like dumb and dumber when they went out and they came off. <laughs> had those fuzzy boots on. <laughs> it don't last forever. But what we find in Christ is eternal, and it's unshaken by outside forces. It's unshaken by outside forces. And that's why people can look at you and think that you've completely lost your mind because you're smiling in the middle of the storm. When we are willing to lose to find him, we find that there's joy in the losing and greater gains than we ever imagined. There's joy in the losing. There's joy in letting go of those things that hold us back from pursuing Christ. There's joy in letting go of those things that eventually we find out that was all rubbish. It was all dung heap stuff. It all belonged in the cow manure. Right? It all belonged, everything that I placed my trust in, everything that I thought would bring me the most joy. And here's the thing to the extent that we start relying on other things other than Jesus to bring us joy, to that extent, we are under the possibility of losing our joy. Because those things don't, will not last forever. But Jesus does, and our relationship with Him does. And so, my challenge for you today is to take a good look at our hearts. And say, where am I finding my joy? What is the source of my joy? What is the source of my excitement? Because if it's not Jesus, if it's not Jesus, it's not just going to affect you. It's going to affect the relationships that God puts in your life. The best thing you can do for your marriage is to pursue Jesus. The best thing you can do for your kids is pursue Jesus. best thing you can do for your job, your friends, pursue Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just change you. He changes everything that you're involved in. When you make him first in your life, 